of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you this week from the stand in Newcastle. I am sitting here with Anna Chizinski, James Harkin, and Andrew Hunter-Murray. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones to share our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And now it is time for fact number one, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that Mo Farah has only one Guinness World Record, and it is in the 100-meter sack race. <laughs> <laughs> when? Is that like a school sports day he was yeah. at? Or? I don't know why he did it, but he did it. Um, <laughs> I, I read an article, and it said, Mo Farah needs a world record to seal his place among the all-time greats. And I thought, <laughs> I'll check if he has one, and he does. <laughs> he has one. He has one other one, uh, which is a two-mile indoor run, but that's not in the Guinness Book of Records. But this, in the Guinness Book of Records, this is the only one, and he's about to lose it. What? Really? Whoa. Yeah. Um, there's a guy called Stephen Wildish uh, from Rawton, and Mo Farah got 39.91 seconds for his 100 meters, and Stephen Wildish has already got 28 seconds. Okay. But unfortunately, two weeks after he did it, he got a letter from Guinness saying that to get the world record, he needed a 50-kilogram sack, and his sack was only 30 kilograms. I thought for a second you meant the sack had to weigh 50 kilograms, (laughs) and I am amazed anyone finishes it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So anyway, I got in touch with Stephen Wildish, and he's going to repeat his uh, attempt next week, uh, and he's really confident that he's definitely going to do it. And so that means that by probably the week after this goes out, Mo Farah will have no Guinness World Records. Oh, oh so we nice. snuck in. right? Yeah. At the, this definitely needs to go out this Friday, James. <laughs> <laughs> What's the speed that he managed to clock in for the record? So Stephen managed to do it at 28 seconds for the 100 meters. So yeah. a normal 100 meters for uh, Usain Bolt would be just under 10 seconds. So, yeah. it, you know, it's not that fast. But it's quite fast. Yeah. And I asked him why, I asked Stephen why he was so much better at the sack race than Mo Farah. Uh, and he says, <laughs> he says, unlike Mo, I have little legs but large calf muscles. And um, I asked him if he has any inspirational words for the people of Newcastle. Uh, and he said, inspirational words, always check your sack. <laughs> Very good. A wise so, man. Good so Mo Farah, you're saying, has the Guinness World Record for the sack race, but he also has... But he does have a world record. He just has one other world record, but it's not uh, a, a special Guinness one. It's just like a, just the IAAF or something. Yeah, like but that. it's a world. It's a world record. I sure. don't think like when Usain Bolt gets an Olympic world record, they're going. Yeah, it's not a Guinness World Record, <laughs> is it? Surely well, that's more. I, of a... I see what you mean, but it is. I mean, it's the two-mile indoor run. Yeah, I mean, I'm not putting him down, but why is that any different than an outdoor run? It's more impressive, really, to have a two-mile-long building, frankly. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. It's weird, though, because on the Guinness record page for running records, they've they've really bumped him up, haven't they? Like, he's in the top four. I think he's fourth one down as the sack race. So, like, (laughs) number one is fastest male marathon. Number two is fastest female. Number three is first to get three records at the Olympics. And number four, he sneaks in there with a sack race. (laughs) And 
I don't want to put down Guinness Book of Records, but when they said that Stephen Wildish's sack was too small, I kind of think they're a bit upset about Mo Farah losing this record. Yeah, they? Mm. they do. No, but they do have rules about um, how big your sack is. They actually do. They have one thing, which is if the sack is too big, they notice that people, as opposed, if it's to like one hundred meters long, for instance. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> But that's that's the main issue, really, because obviously in a sack race, you're hopping everywhere. Um, if you have a slightly larger sack, people actually run inside the sack in yeah. order to get there, and that builds up speed in you a way You can that... kind of run... You can put your feet into little corners and yeah. do a little kind of wiggly run. But the thing is, um, it used to be in the 19th century in America that each um, college would have their athletics team, so they'd have a javelin thrower and a 100 meters runner, but they would all also have a sack race guy. And this was quite a big deal. And they would train and they would really try and be awesome at the sack race. And some of them would hop and some of them would run with their feet in the corners. And the hoppers were usually better. Uh, and the thing is that they came up with a technique of really hopping as, like, as far as they could. And it was quite ungainly. And sometimes they'd fall over. Okay, But they were so good that when they fell over, they sort of did a little somersault and could get back on their feet immediately, and they virtually lost no time whatsoever. Oh, wow. wow. Like uh, Andy's anal thing that he was talking about earlier. Sorry. <laughs> what? So for the people listening to this podcast on Friday... <laughs> and oh, yeah. and I, I, I would hope you'd edit this bit right out. Not a chance. <laughs> There's a new robot. <laughs> no, no, we don't have time for this. No, we don't we have do. time. We have no, no, we don't have time. No, no. People can just imagine what you were thinking about. Okay. Um, do you know there's a 100 meters on all fours world record? Is there? Mm. And it's uh, 15.71 seconds. That's fast. It's wow. really... It's, they are unbelievably fast, the guys who do it. It's so good. Um, so it's the same man who's broken the record four times since 2008. Uh, he's a Japanese guy, and uh, to practice, he mops floors on all fours, oh. which is fun to say as well as to do. <laughs> um, How does that help him practice? I think he just gets habituated to being on all fours all the time and moving around, and you know he, he's less likely. But it's to... misrepresentative of the actual purchase you can get on the ground. He, that would be more useful if he was ice skating, because then you have no, the slip of a. It's like training at altitude, isn't it? Because if you can do it on a slippy floor and then you get on a proper road... Yeah. He's not wrong. Yeah, he's right. Yeah. He's right. These stupid sports, like sports day sports, used to be more difficult. Uh, stupid sports? You know, sports that are, all, are for the people who aren't sporty sports We've all day. got a list in our head. Pole vaults on mine. <laughs> pole vaults are stupid sport? Stupid sport. I'm thinking more egg and spoon, the three-legged, all that kind of stuff. But I was looking them up in the British newspaper archive to see, you know, what people used to do in, in the olden days about them. Um, and it turns out that the egg and spoon race, for instance, used to be done while punting. Um, so there what? was there was a reference. Uh, this is, in fact, this is the earliest usage in the OED of egg and spoon. is in 1894, and it said the gentleman had a turn in the egg and spoon race in which competitors had to punt with one hand and balance an egg and spoon with another. So that is actually much harder. You know, punting for people who aren't from Oxford or Cambridge is where you are on a boat standing up and you drop a stick in and you have to power your boat along at the uh, same time as carrying an egg and spoon. Wow. Yeah. I thought you meant punting as in putting a bet on with the horses. <laughs> no, no, you, that was strictly forbidden, actually. And the wheelbarrow race was blindfolded. Um, this was in the 19th century at, uh, so for instance, at Quivic. Blindfolded? blindfolded. Yeah, well, yeah. wheelbarrows don't have eyes. Exactly. <laughs> 
It's just more realistic. I think you're both blindfolded. So this is for Queen Victoria's Jubilee. There was a huge wheelbarrow race, and she didn't. So, she didn't participate. Sorry, the wheelbarrow. Are we talking? We're talking where you're carrying someone's legs and they're moving on their hands in yeah. front of you. Not a wheelbarrow, wheelbarrow. No, no. Where there are two per- people, two and one people. of them is pretending one to be a wheelbarrow. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to be blindfolded, which makes it a lot more difficult. Both yes. of you. Mm-hmm. That's nuts. Yeah. Hey, you know that um, uh, Mo Farah does the Mobot? Oh yeah. Uh, it turns out that, that he's actually being the M from YMCA. <laughs> As in, are you saying that's where he came up with it, or just no? They came. So he does that thing. He does. He does his Mobot, and the inspiration from that was he was on a TV show. Claire Balding and James Corden were trying to work out what he should do to celebrate the win, and Claire Balding was the one who invented it. James Corden called it the Mobot, but she said it's the M from YMCA. If you had um, someone who'd just done a vault in the gymnastics stood next to him, you only need a C and an A, and you've got the whole thing. (laughs) (laughs) But wait, that's not... It stands for the M of his name. I think Claire Balding was just trying to explain what it looked like to uh, people if they weren't watching the TV, right? He doesn't do it as a tribute to the YMCA. (laughs) I don't think. No, he's, st- he's plagiarised one of the greatest dance. If well. Mr. Farrah's lawyers are listening, <laughs> it's a big claim. It's not one we all support on this show. <laughs> do you know something Mo Farrah did do, which uh, is not that cool, actually? He's, there's a, he has a fellow runner called Chris Thompson, and they're good friends, and Chris Thompson won a silver medal in Barcelona when Mo won gold a few years ago. I don't know why I'm calling him Mo, I don't know him, when Mo Farrah won gold a few years ago. But... The first time they ran a race together, Mo Farah said, was encouraging him and said, how about we'll run this race, we're going to win it, Uh, we'll both run it, we'll hold hands as we run, and then we can cross the finish line at the same time. And so they did it, and they held hands for the full race, Um, and then with 10 metres to go, Mo Farah let go of him, pushed it aside and sprinted ahead to the win. So um, the 100 metre record for Egg and Spoon Race uh, is, do you think it's more or less than Stephen Wildish's um, 20, sec- 28 seconds. 28 yeah. seconds. Uh, quicker or slower? Uh, quicker. quicker. It is quicker, yeah. Um, it's 16.59 seconds. Wow. Um, but it was set by Sally Pearson, who is a professional 100-meter runner. Or oh. she's a hurdler, um, but she's quite famous. Uh, and she beat a guy called Ashrita Furman, who you guys might recognize. We've mentioned him before. He has more than 100 world records, mostly yeah. in what Anna might call the stupid sports. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Triple jump. (laughs) (laughs) I've got loads. (laughs) I can't think of many non-stupid sports. Well, um, he, I reckon he must have been pretty annoyed to have lost his 100-meter egg and spoon race uh, because the very next month, he then broke the 100 meters carrying an egg and spoon in the mouth record. (laughs) Didn't even know that was a sport. I suspect it probably wasn't. Do you know that school sports days, a regular feature of them used to be the pillow fight? And now that's a sport. That's <laughs> <laughs> How do you win the pillow fight? I don't know. It didn't actually say. So I read this article where the, when it was just announced. We used to play in Australia for sports. Um, mm. You would sit on a, a big wooden pole and you'd each have a pillow and you'd try and whack each other off. Um, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't aware you had such a traditional education, Dan. <laughs> Okay, it is time for fact number two. And that is Andy. My fact is that the inside of a Kit Kat is made of more Kit Kats. <laughs> it, Kit Kats are an infinite recursive loop, is what I'm trying to say. 
This is so cool. I mean, it's, it can't be true, right? It because can't. where did the first Kit Kat insides come from? Nobody knows. Ah. <laughs> yeah, this is like a chicken and egg situation, isn't it? Kind of, yeah. So, Except the eggs are not made of mashed up <laughs> chickens. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's kind of it's kind of like that. So basically, during the production process of Kit Kat, some of them don't meet the very strict criteria for a proper Kit Kat. They're the wrong uh, shape, or they got uh, too many fingers. <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, they're wrong, and they are they are rejected, and they are ground up, and they are the filling layer between the wafer bits in a Kit Kat is made of those, plus a couple of other things as well, more sugar. Um, so, yeah, this hit the headlines earlier this year. Um, Which I'd never hit the headlines. Sure, it was, it was a slow news day, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I'd never noticed until you said this fact, I looked into it, that there was a layer between the wafer and a Kit Kat. Oh, I yeah. just thought it was chocolate around the outside and wafer on the inside. Sometimes you get one which is all chocolate. Wow. That is oh, a big day. It's a good day, that, isn't is it, it, when you get one you, of those. Have you had one of those? Oh, yeah. Has anyone else? Yeah. About half the room, okay, cool. <laughs> wow. Okay. You really, honestly, Andy, wait till it happens to you. It's a real life changer. <laughs> but Kit Kats, I only realized looking into this, what they mean in Japan, oh, which is a lot. Everything. What do you everything. Mean? So Japanese people just love Kit Kats and they've gone way more nuts for them than we have. So um, apparently Kito Katsu is a Japanese expression that means surely win. So it basically means good luck. And so because of this coincidence, they're super popular in Japan and they've got loads of flavors. So they've got more than 300 different Kit Kat flavors in <laughs> Japan. Um, Nestle have just built a factory there specifically to make the weird ass flavors that they have. So wow. they have like wasabi flavored Kit Kats, they have soy sauce flavor, they have sushi flavored Kit Kats. What you, guys, you haven't tried it. That's Don't knock it until you try it. They they have in Japan made a Kit Kat which doubles up as a postcard and you can just put it in the post to someone because every year about half the children doing their exams get sent a Kit Kat for good luck because of that surely win thing. So Kit Kat invented a, one that's a postcard. And you can just send it to someone. Wow. Just put a Kit Kat into the letterbox. If you did that here, you'd be arrested. <laughs> <laughs> you could, we're only one envelope away from that. Oh. <laughs> yeah, but you know that um, Kit Kat started out as mutton pies. Mm. <laughs> this is true. It, um, so there was a club in London called the Kit Kat, the Kit Kat, the Kit, Kit. the Kit Kat Club, and um, and it was it was run by an innkeeper called Christopher Cat, who was called Kit Kat. And every all the literary figures of the time used to go there, and he would serve them mutton pies, which they called a Kit Kat. And so the idea is that that just became a name of a, a popular food source, and then eventually it turned into Kit Kat. No one has acknowledged that this is true, um, <laughs> but, but no, they uh, have. They're the, definitely the Kit, yeah. club, the Kit Kat Club is definitely true. It's it definitely happened. true, and it, it was a socialist club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the original Kit Kat definitely was mutton pies, but get this. The ceilings were so low in the Kit Kat Club that they were a beautiful establishment. So what they what they did was have paintings all over the club. But because the ceilings were so low, they needed to get paintings that were longer on the uh, well on landscape rather than mm -hmm. portrait. And there's a theory that the reason that Kit Kats are shaped like they are <laughs> is because they're paying tribute to the squatty paintings of the Kit Kat Club <laughs> in London. 
Sorry, I didn't realize when he said no one's acknowledged this is true, you were talking about the thing you were about to say. (laughs) (laughs) You know the Kit Kat slogan? I only have have a break. Have have a break. I only got that yesterday. That's a that's a pun. (laughs) I didn't realize it was a reference to Kit Kat's breaking. I thought it was just like, you know, a break of work. I didn't get the other meaning. And it only... Come did on, everyone uh, get that? Some, no, no, what? no. Come on, like of course the... everyone okay. fucking got it. <laughs> <laughs> it's not as if the slogan writer's going to be at his home going, finally! <laughs> oh, was it too obtuse? What was I doing that was wrong? Sorry, can I, can I join Anna's club of people who didn't... You're kidding. Oh, sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's... In the in the advert, they break it as they say, "Have a break." I didn't. Th- I know. I know. I know. <laughs> we know all the clues were there, James. Sometimes yeah. these things, and it only came about in the fifties when they toughened up the materials that they made Kit Kats from, and they were very proud of the new snapping sound that it made. And so, actually, the crucial thing about it is the breaking sound. Look who's suddenly the expert on the. Uh... <laughs> Etymology and understanding of a slogan. I have a fact about chocolate. Okay. Mm. Okay. The average chocolate bar is about 20 to 25% fat, 40 to 50% sugar, right? So it's one gram of fat to two grams of sugar, Okay. Right? Now, it's very unusual in nature to find those ratios of sugar and fat together. So if you have nuts, they have lots of fat, but not, no sugar. If you have fruit, loads of sugar, but no fat. There is a theory that the reason we like chocolate is because the place you find that same ratio, one gram fat, two grams sugar is breast milk. Oh. No way. Yeah, 4% fat, 8% sugar. So it may be that we are trying to recreate <laughs> no. our earliest <laughs> yeah. comfort food. That's what's happening. Why do you think the Terry's chocolate orange is so successful? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. Because <laughs> you were breastfed by an Oompa Loompa and... <laughs> You're trying to get back to that. Wait, Dan, the Terry's chocolate orange isn't orange. You know you have to take the wrapping off. <laughs> <laughs> I found a really cool thing. I was looking into how they test um, chocolate, and it led me down a little road that got me to um, McVitie's and, and all sorts of... Just how they, they... For candies and biscuits and chocolate biscuits and stuff. And um, there's a dummy that tests crumb uh, lucage once you're biting into... Mm. Uh, so it's a robot dummy... That just bites. It's got plastic teeth. It's called a crumb test dummy. And okay. the idea is that McVitie's have a laboratory where they put it into its mouth and it just goes up, up, up. And the, <laughs> the advantage is that it never stops doing that uh, because it doesn't need to breathe. Because, Andy, what is it? The robot. Yes. <laughs> it's a bit like that anal thing you were talking no. about. Yeah. Do we need yeah. to move on to the next fact? Yeah, we do actually. We do need to move on to the next fact. Um, oh, uh, sorry, Andy, to cut you off again. <laughs> Try to get to it before the end of the show. Um, and now it is time for fact number three, and that is Chazinski. Yeah, my fact this week is that the first hamsters to come to the UK arrived in a coat pocket. Oh. I know. <laughs> So sweet. The story of hamsters is really interesting. So um, basically there was a scientist called... Don't be (laughs) sceptical. There was a scientist uh, called Saul Adler back in the 1920s, 1930s, and he decided that hamsters would be similar, were similar enough to humans 
that they might serve as useful lab animals for obvious reasons that I don't need to go into. Hamsters, humans, basically the same. Um, and he, no, he specifically wanted to try out stuff that might cure parasitic diseases on them. And so he brought three hamsters back from Syria in 1931. So all the pet hamsters that you have had in your childhoods and that you've ever seen are all descended um, from the, this tiny batch of Syrian hamsters that these guys found in, in the 1930s. And yeah, he smuggled these guys back in his coat pocket. And didn't he smuggle them? I, I might be thinking of a different person, but didn't he smuggle them back in the coat pocket because they ate their way out of the box that they well, were in? Yes. It's a really exciting story. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It is. No, they got, they got a dozen, didn't they, to start? Yeah. They had 11 and a mother. And then the mother started, the mother killed one of the babies, so then they had 10 less. Okay, fine. And then half of them escaped and had to be recaptured. And then they put them in a wooden box and they chewed through that and then were recaptured. It's like The Great Escape, but with hamsters. <laughs> and that was with, the, the guy was called Israel Aharoni, wasn't he? Yeah. Who, he was the guy who was determined that he'd get these hamsters. And it sounds like his life depended on it. <laughs> um, when, when these five escaped, he was absolutely devastated. He said he was shaken to his depths. And imagine, yeah, when the mother ate her children, and then he had three left, and then I think, uh, oh no, yeah, one, one sibling ate another, and then he had to mate the brother and sister, didn't he, that were yes. left? So they're all products of incest. No. All your childhood hamsters. Yeah. Incest. That's actually one of... <laughs> all that, of them. That's one of the reasons they're so useful, because uh, uh, their similarity to humans is genuinely because they're very susceptible to heart disease, hamsters, um, as susceptible as humans are. So that's why they're quite good to study. And the reason they're susceptible is because they're all very inbred. Really? Yeah, yeah, apparently so. Wow. Mm. The thing is about um, hamsters is it's really weird why they become popular pets, really. Because they only live for a couple of years. Tick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a certain comfort, James, in knowing this is a short-term contract. <laughs> well, they don't like being handled. Tick. You know? And they're nocturnal, so during the day they don't do anything. Mm. Are they nocturnal? I read that they... Well, they're in the wild, they're definitely nocturnal. Both of mine, as a child, were nocturnal. They just didn't want to hang out with you, man. <laughs> I read as well that it's because I kept pointing at them and saying incest. <laughs> <laughs> you should be ashamed. Yeah. <laughs> Clock's ticking, boys. <laughs> you got two months left. I've had mobile phone contracts longer than you. <laughs> <laughs> I've read that you can uh, that they are able to drink alcohol because they hold they hold things. What is it? They hold stuff in their cheeks yeah. for mm -hmm. so long and then they hoard them. And they don't eat them till much later, but then it ferments and it turns into alcohol. And so they've had to turn their digestive system into one that can just down booze really quickly and not die, which a lot of animals can't do. And so these are the like Syrian... someone from Newcastle, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Risky. Their pouches are amazing, though. They, their cheeks stretch back to their hips when they need them to. What? Yeah, they basically go and run down the whole length of their body. And they, they switch off their saliva glands to stop themselves accidentally metabolizing the food that they want to store. So they stop making saliva um, until they feel hungry and then they yeah. start making it again. I read one thing that said that they um, can put enough stuff in their cheeks that will make their heads triple in size. <laughs> what? I, but I looked at the, the size of the hamster's head and did a bit of working out. And basically it's the equivalent of me fitting a large tin of paint in my mouth. <laughs> And ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> for our finale tonight. <laughs> I, th I think that's why they were called 
saddlebags, right? So when they first went to Syria to find them, they realized the Arabic word for them translated as Mr. Saddlebags. <laughs> That's what they called hamsters. Well, I'm not sure why, but I assume that must be it. I think that is it. Yeah. Have you heard of America's hamster king? No. no. He's cool. He's a great guy. He's the guy who popularized the hamster across the whole of the USA. Uh, he's a guy from Mobile, Alabama, and his name was Albert F. Marsh. And so I think in the early 50s, but I might be wrong, might be 40s, um, he, he took one hamster on as a payment of a $1 gambling debt. That was how the debt to him was paid off in a hamster. Right. And he must have got another one from somewhere because he then bred the, them. <laughs> um, but within three years, he was making the equivalent of $1.8 million a year just from sending hamsters out to people and the way he built this business, it was a huge business. He, he, he can't have been making that much money. How much was he charging he for made a, I, I think he charged about a million. $9. <laughs> no, it was about $9, which would have been a lot more then. Um, but this is incredible. So he, did the, he built the business up, and he made it absolutely massive really quickly. And his shipping method was to send a hamster to the address uh, you wanted it sent to in a coffee can with a potato. And the potato was for it to eat and drink along the way. <laughs> and it would arrive and you would have a hamster and then no potato in a coffee tin. That is worse than Ryanair food, <laughs> i got to say. <laughs> One potato. Come on. <laughs> um, I was reading that, uh, so the idea of him bringing this, uh, hamst these bunch of hamsters in his coat pocket... Um, I suddenly thought that's, you know, the idea of like smuggling things in. I think I slightly misread the fact thinking it was smuggling in, but um, so I looked up smuggling and that's where we're going now. Um, <laughs> but I, I was a story that happened just this year and I'm so upset that it's not made it into the book because uh, it would have been perfect. Um, a woman was arrested uh, in Venezuela after several guards caught her trying to break her boyfriend out of jail by smuggling him out in the suitcase that she brought in with her. <laughs> so she went in with her daughter and she just had, oh, I've just got my suitcase with me. And during the visit, while the guards were away, she opened it up, he got inside, they zipped him up, and then she tried to just walk out again with him. And she got quite far, but then she started struggling with the suitcase. And uh, so they laid it down and they opened it up and inside was a squished boyfriend who... Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, that is not the only person in suitcase crime story that what, has from this year. From this year, no. Oh, yes, wow. in the news last week there was a guy, I think in India, who was arrested because he had been committing crime by getting himself loaded into luggage holds in a bag, and then he would get out of the bag, rob all the other bags in the luggage hold, and then get back into his bag. No. Yes. Wait, how how could he fit everything in his bag with him? I think he might he might have just left at that point. I'm not oh, sure. Okay. <laughs> well, he might have just stolen small things. But imagine on that carousel if you accidentally pick up the wrong bag <laughs> and there's a small is, Indian man. Is in this that. mine? No, that's not mine. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on to our final fact. Uh, okay, it's time for our final fact of the show, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that an effective way to treat snoring is to regularly play the didgeridoo. <laughs> this has been done, it's been proven by scientists to work. Um, no less annoying for the partner, is it? When you come home, you're like, darling, I've got fantastic news. I found a cure. I'm just going to constantly play the didgeridoo for the rest of our relationship. <laughs> Instead of sleeping, I will be in bed next to you playing the didgeridoo. You won't even notice any snoring. 
Yeah, no, they, they did this um, as a test. They had 25 patients who all suffer from chronic snoring. Um, they're 18 years old um, onwards. So they, they usually, snoring affects people much older, but they wanted to start at a younger age. Um, and they had them all practice a didgeridoo for 5.9 days per week. That's how it worked out. Um, for 25.3 minutes per uh, session. And they found a remarkable um, recovery process of the, the nasal passage for when you're sleeping that you no longer were snoring either as intensely or at all. So if anyone here in the audience is a snorer, um, get yourself to Australia. It's a bit expensive. That's, <laughs> that's where they sell them. And yeah, start playing. So I found out about this a few years ago. I went onto the QI forums, which is where we do the research for the TV show. And I looked for didgeridoo, and it turns out I posted about this in 2006. Yeah, which is when the report came out. Yeah, yeah. and um, I suggested a question for QI, which was, how does Rolf Harris sleep at night? We dodged a bullet there, right? Wow. Oh, my God. Wow. I actually own a didgeridoo. No, you don't. Promise. I was given it as a present uh, for my 16th birthday. Can you play it? No. <laughs> it's very hard to play. Yeah. You, I yeah. can only get one note out of it. <laughs> <laughs> and you need, you need uh, circular breathing the which whole I, way through. Which I can't do. And I read that when the way that they get different sounds, yeah. it's all to do with the way that you shape your lip once it's inside. So in the way that if you were saying words like, hello, 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 <laughs> that, that would be like, and then if you were like, wow, wow, wow. Wait, do you put your lips inside? I think your lips go inside the digital. Yep, I see now. Because <laughs> <laughs> it stretches the mouth unbelievably. <laughs> How do these guys do it? <laughs> this explains my short lived trumpet career as well. It is a circular breathing, right? That means it can cure snoring. Is that the idea? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing. Yeah. I thought it, it I also it just is. seems to strengthen your whole uh, respiratory tract. You know, it just makes everything stronger in the whole in yeah. The yes. department. Yeah. And snoring is very problematic. Apparently, a third of people in relationships cite snoring as a problem in their relationship. A third? In Finland. Maybe they snore loads. I, in know. <laughs> <laughs> I have snoring. Um, bad. I have bad snoring. Yeah. <laughs> and talking. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I talk to my wife about it every morning because I'm like, was it bad last night with my snoring? And <laughs> was it bad for you last night? <laughs> <laughs> and she, she's always, she's like, no, I really like it. It's really, um, it's, uh. God, you're a lucky man, aren't you? <laughs> or, or I've married a freak. I don't know what's going on. But she, um, she says because it's consistent, you know, it has a rhythm it's it feels like you know you're out at sea or you know there's a <laughs> i think i have a very pleasurable snore um did you know that she is suffering more than you are probably so when snoring is cured people's partner's quality of life improves more than the snorer's quality of life and apparently the partners of snorers wake up on average 21 times an hour what Whoa. in the night yeah no like way. a little bit you know like you semi wake up and then you fall back to wow. sleep so wow. Have some That's pity. Um, Sorry. Well, I, no, it's about didgeridoos. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but it is about didgeridoos. <laughs> All right, didgeridoos. Um, this is just a, a story that was in the BBC uh, news website. It's, it's from a few years ago. It's from 2004. And the story is, a Thameslink train driver caused two terror alerts when he mistook a didgeridoo for a grenade launcher. <laughs> <laughs> 
he's a train driver in London, and he reported that he had seen a man carrying a grenade launcher. Um, other passengers said the man fitting the driver's description of the suspect had been there, but only had a didgeridoo. <laughs> right, that happened in the morning. Then, later the same day, the same driver reported seeing the man taking aim at Loughborough Junction. <laughs> And the terror police said, this time we found the man with the didgeridoo. And he added, the driver was quite right to inform us about what he genuinely thought was a terrorist threat on both occasions. Which is, ah. you can't really say anything else, can you? <laughs> if you're an idiot, <laughs> don't phone in. You can't say that. He must have been so annoyed the second time, calling, saying, I can't believe you guys were irresponsible enough not to catch him the first time round, yeah. and I'm having to tell you again. The traditional mouth-launched grenade launcher. <laughs> I was trying to work out actually because didgeridoos obviously very long, uh, very wide. Um, how they hollow out the inside of a didgeridoo so that you get it. So I started googling it and couldn't find anything. Oh, it's, uh, oh. It's, yeah, uh, termites do it. What? Oh, really? Yeah. yeah, they train termites to no. <laughs> <laughs> oh. No, they're kind of naturally occurring, aren't they? So you get a big bit of eucalyptus and the termites live inside and they eat all the inside bit and then you can cut it off and you've got a naturally occurring... So you have to wait for a didgeridoo to naturally occur before... Yeah, but it's not like a long wait. It's not like people buy like filled-in planks of wood and then they sit there staring at it. They're just in the wild. No, that's what... But I mean, it's like we're just... We're taking wild instruments and bringing them... (laughs) Like, we're not even making them. We're just finding them in the wild, taking them from their habitat, and then sticking our mouth right around the rim of them. <laughs> hey, we're going to have to wrap up in a sec. Have you guys got anything more before we do? There's a bed you can buy. It's like a robotic bed. Ooh. Oh. Yeah. Like my... Um, like your radar thing. Yeah. 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 <laughs> we but, don't have time, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> but, but anyway, it, this is amazing. It has sensors in it, and it can tell when you're snoring... And then it kind of just moves you very slowly into a better position so you won't snore. Oh. Isn't that incredible? And it also will warm up your feet. <laughs> so it'll tell if you've got cold feet and it'll go, oh, no, That's I'm going to warm up. That's incredible. How could it tell? Oh, they're clever robots, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> Mate, they're doing somersaults inside you. They are. <laughs> That's the robot for listeners. It's a colonoscopy robot. Get the word out. We don't have time. We don't have time. Okay, that's it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to get in contact with us about anything that we've said over the course of this podcast, you can find us on our Twitter accounts. Uh, I'm on at Schreiberland. Andy? At Andrew Hunter M. James? At James Harkin. Anna? You can email podcast.qi.com. Yep, or you can go to our website, which is no such thing as a fish.com. We have all of our previous episodes up there. We also have a book available. It's out on November the 2nd. We're about to give one away to the best fact that we've received from the audience, of which we have picked. James, have you got it? Yes, uh, the winner is at Jess Sarah X on Twitter. And her fact is that the Northeast has the greatest variety of ginger hair in the world <laughs> with 47 shades. Whoa! <laughs> 47 Shades of Ginger. That is a book that I would definitely, (laughs) definitely be down for. Um, Okay, that's it. We'll be back again next week with another episode. Thank you so much for being here, guys. That was really fun. We'll see you again. Goodbye. Well, hi, guys. It seems I'm the last one left in the office, and I think that's because all the others have gone to use their brand new Harry's 
razors. That's what they do with a Friday night. That's just the kind of lives they lead. And I just wanted to thank our sponsors, Harry's, once again, and say if you do want to support the show and get that trial set delivered to you, then you should go to harrys.com slash fish and you'll get your razor handle and your five blade cartridge and your shaving gel and your travel blade cover and you too can have an excellent Friday night. harrys.com slash fish. Fish.